0: The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Roanoke Park area. And Now we'll take our Bibles for today's message, and if you will please open to Ephesians chapter 4. Today, we're taking a break from our study of Christian warfare. Next week, we will return to part number two of the message, The Shield of Faith. Now, this is Thanksgiving week, and I think it's good for us to take take a step back from all of our troubles and consider how we can show our Lord that we are thankful. Uh, it's, this year has been hard on us, and As we've studied in Christian warfare, and it's emphasized that living for Christ is a daily battle. Now, I know as a church body that we have never experienced a time when we're ordered not to gather. And yet this is what the church is. It is an assembly. It is a gathering of God's people. Now, the Sunday before Thanksgiving has always been one of my favorites because After the sermon we usually sit together and we have a church-wide Thanksgiving dinner and as I preached, the aroma of turkey and dressing and vegetables and desserts lingered in the air and you were more anxious than usual that I would get done so that we could get to the meal. The Thanksgiving dinner also gave us an opportunity as a family to sit down and fellowship and just let the good food remind us of God's bountiful blessings. Now, we don't have that this year because we can't assemble. At least we can't do it indoors. And now we're months and months since the last time that we came together as a church body. Well, if this pandemic has done anything for us, I think surely that it has done this it's made us appreciate God's wisdom in designing a way for his people to dwell together in unity and to draw strength and encouragement from each other. That's done through the assembly of the church. God's design works perfectly when we act as a family in fellowship. Now, families love the company of other family members and fellowship, of course, is dependent upon the good treatment of each other. What we want is we all want peace in the family. And when there's strife and division, there is no peace. Living in a house with constant contention is a miserable experience. And you remember that the Proverbs says that it's better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than with a brawling woman in a wide house. Now, I think it's interesting that Solomon said that twice in the Proverbs and Of course, he had much experience with many wives. But whether we're speaking of wives or husbands, children or or other relatives, you don't want to live in a house where there is no peace. Uh, You may remember, I'm sure, the first days of the pandemic when workplaces were, almost everything was shut down. Stores were difficult to go to. Everyone was told they must stay in the house. And there were many of you that commented on how much uh, stress there was and being cooped up too long and maybe that's part of the wisdom that God shows with the church you see he didn't turn us into a commune he didn't make us hermits that are separate from the world but he calls us to go to our jobs and to mix and to mingle with others and to be witnesses wherever we are witnesses of the gospel and in that wisdom we are not always living together in the same place with only Christians. And I suppose if we were, it may be possible for us to have too much contact, and then we find ourselves grating on each other. Now, earlier this year, I preached a series on unity, and I think then that we learned the value of harmony in the church. We don't want a church with arguments. We don't want a church with bad attitudes, with backbiting and offensive speech. We want to live a better existence than the world. There are some that want churches back open because church is their escape. Church is the place that they go to get away from dysfunctional, arguing families. They want churches open because they can escape the the workplace where nobody cares. And that's what the church is for many. The church is a place uh, that they can escape the constant warfare that goes on outside of these walls. So they certainly don't want to go to church to experience the same dysfunction well in this passage today I believe there is a key for helping us have right attitudes of the Bible is practical there is great doctrine in the scriptures but it's always given for practical applications and whenever the scriptures are applied they produce people that are conformed to the image of Christ now in Ephesians there is much information about how we become like Christ we are Christ like when we are conformed to his image and the practical application of Scripture is the process of becoming like Christ now in this fourth chapter is the practical application of earlier chapters that tell us that we were predestined for the glory of Christ I'd like us to look at this lengthy passage in chapter four and I want to begin in verse number 17, but our concentration today will be on verses 31 and 32. But all of this is important for us to get the, the flow of the passage and what we're going to talk about today. So in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 17, This I say therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ, if so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus." That ye put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor working with his hands. The thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God whereby you're sealed under the day of redemption. Now verses 31 and 32 this is our text. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Well this is a thanksgiving message And you may wonder, what does this passage have to do with being thankful? Well, I could have taken a direct approach and I could have chosen many other scriptures and other avenues that in them I could give you a list of things to be thankful for. But this is not my approach today. Rather, I want to talk about the evidence of thankfulness. Are you a Christian who proves that you are thankful A few weeks ago in Table Talk Magazine, the Saturday devotion was titled Abounding in Thanksgiving. And this article referred to the Heidelberg Catechism of 1563 and said that it was divided along three lines. And these divisions in the catechism are summarized as guilt, grace, and gratitude. Well, I want to show you something that I saw As I was thinking about that and I read the article and then I was preparing the message that I noticed that those three divisions are found here in this letter to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter two, verses one through three, we find the first division, which is guilt there. It says, and you hath he quickened. Who were dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein in time past he walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince and power of the air. The spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Among whom also we all had our conversation in times past. In the lust of our flesh. Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And were by nature the children of wrath even as others. We were the children of disobedience. We were dead in our sins. We lived according to the power of Satan. This is our guilt. But then in verses 4 and 5 comes the second division, which is grace. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved. And then following that all the way to the beginning of chapter 4 is an explanation of what grace did for us. And Paul concludes chapter 3 by saying that the grace of God, the work of God in us, passes understanding. And then he concludes with a doxology that compels the church to give glory to Christ for their entire existence. And then in chapter 4 comes the third division, gratefulness. How do we glorify Christ? By gratefulness, by gratitude. And of what does this gratefulness consist? Well, we look at chapter 4, verse number 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. The question asked in the catechism is, since then, we are delivered from our misery, merely of grace through Christ, without any merits of our own, why must we still do good works? And the answer to that question drives my sermon today. If we operate in grace and works are not necessary for our salvation, why must we still do good works? Now, the answer in the catechism is this, because Christ having redeemed and delivered us by his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit after his own image, that we may testify by the whole of our conduct, our gratitude to God for his blessings, and that he may be praised by us. Now, as I prepared this message, the first title that I gave it was Thankfulness is Obedience. Well, the Heidelberg Catechism is scripturally correct when it says that a Christian shows he is thankful by what he does with his life. Our good works are an expression of our thankfulness. How much we are like Christ is the degree of our thankfulness. What is our response to God's grace? Thankfulness. Look at verses 22 to 24 in chapter 4. That you put off concerning the former conversation, that is the way you live, the old man, which is corrupt according to deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that you may put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Now, when we trust Christ, we are spiritually renewed. We are reborn. And our faith in Christ is what you might call an extreme makeover. And since we've been made new in Christ, we are to rid ourselves of bad habits, to rid ourselves of the old works of our sinful flesh. And then we are to live according to the new nature that was given by God in regeneration. So real thankfulness is is when we obey God out of a heart of love for his saving grace Now, obedience, that's a very practical matter. And these verses show what it is to leave the lifestyle of the children of disobedience and to have our lives reoriented to a life of christ likeness. Now, you'll notice in our text that Paul has been very specific about sin. Often what we do is generalize sin. We don't speak specifically about what Christians should or shouldn't do. Uh, mostly what they shouldn't do. Uh, in the verses preceding our text, Paul spoke of lying and anger, stealing and evil speaking. And then in verse 29, uh, that any kind of corrupt speech, that should not be a part of the Christian's vocabulary. He was very specific about what Christians should not do. I remember speaking to someone who told me this was some years ago. Uh, this person said that people don't like the Baptist church because we are rigid about what people should not do. And I'm not surprised by that because people don't like to hear about their sins. They don't like to be told that they're sinners. But this is what the word of God says. And I stand on this rather than anyone's opinion of what I should teach. If the apostles of Jesus Christ and Christ himself said these things, then of course I'm right if I repeat what they said. But in most churches, the preacher wants you to go away feeling good about yourself. And so if you listen all the way to the end of one of my sermons and you hear that you are a sinner, that there are sins that you need to get rid of and you get done and you don't feel so good about yourself, then I've been faithful to the calling to preach the word of God. And if you want some relief from that burden... Then you do exactly what the word of God says. You confess your sins. The word says he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. Well, Paul gives us a list of sins in these verses. Many of the many times uh, in our prayers, we confess in general. We don't get down to the nitty gritty of saying, Lord, this is what I did. Please forgive me of this thing that I did. But when you confess specifically. It brings sin right down into your living room and you realize it's not the abstract sins of everyone that you're praying about. This is your sin and it's personal to you. And I think Paul is getting more personal as he starts verses 31 and 32. Almost as if he is looking us in the eye and getting into our face and saying, this is your problem and now you need to stop it. Now he gave us four sins in verses 25 through 29 And in those verses, his method seems to me to be more like group speak. But in verses 31 and 32, this is more like the apostle sitting down in a chair beside of us and putting his arm around us and saying, let's correct some things in your life. Well, let's look at this for a few minutes. Giving up sin is more than just an exercise in correction that helps us personally It's far more important that we rid ourselves of sin because of the holiness of God and because of what he did for Christ's sake in his grace. And what we do for Christ's sake is our thankfulness for what he's done. So what do we do for Christ's sake? Well, let me give you three new avenues of outlook on doing things. Uh, In thankfulness for Christ's sake. And this is how we understand that third division in the Heidelberg Catechism of gratitude. Now, first, what we must do is to dismiss old attitudes. Dismiss old attitudes. All of us have character flaws. We come from different backgrounds. We've grown up in different environments. We run have run with different crowds. And so there are many factors that affect, uh, affect the way that we interact with each other. But I notice, as Paul writes, he doesn't mention our diversities. You know, there's so much said about diversity today. But Paul doesn't mention our diversities or how that we are unequal to each other. And I don't think he does that because when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit is the great equalizer. It doesn't matter where you came from. doesn't matter about your social background. The person that has the Holy Spirit controlling his life is filled with the Spirit and he has the mind of Christ. And this makes all of us start the Christian life on level ground. We are all on the same level. We all have the same ability to develop godly characteristics. And this means that you have as much ability as Paul. And if you're thinking of the preacher, you have as much ability as me to be Christ-like. That's the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. And if godly characteristics do not become evident, then we've never been born again. Now, there are many excuses for bad behavior. Psychologists come up with thousands of reasons that people act badly. But God's not interested in excuses. In salvation, God renews the mind. You see that in verse 23. And the power of the Spirit can change the behavior of any person. A person who has Holy Spirit power has no excuse for bad actions. And you have no excuse not to correct your evil habits. So if you have the problems of this passage, you must get rid of them. Well, first... From your attitude, you must subtract your sourness. Let all bitterness be put away from you. In scripture, a bitter attitude is always associated with sourness. A bitter spirit is one that never sees anything but a bleak outlook. Now, there are many sour Christians look like they drank a jar of pickle juice. I associate sourness with pessimism. Have you met people that are so pessimistic that no matter what you suggest, no no matter how you see outer problems and get around those problems and think uh think uh, how how things can be done to correct your problems, they don't want to be positive about those things. They're not looking for good outcomes. They're always negative. Now, in these troubling days, they're truly in their element because they have so much to be pessimistic about. And so they never see a positive side to anything. The pandemic the disappointment of the election, not having church, the social distancing, it's hard to find positives. But nevertheless, the scriptures still tell us there is nothing that happens to us that doesn't work for our good. And so if we let these things depress us and they ruin our attitude, well, that means that we distrust God's promise that he is protecting our welfare. And we just say Romans eight twenty-eight is not true. I like the way that one author put it. He said, bitterness then describes the kind of life which has become sour. It's not ready to believe good of anybody or anything, but always ready to believe evil. It's always somewhat cynical, takes the glory out of everything, tries to spoil everything. When it's shown something beautiful, it doesn't praise the 99% that is beautiful, but always points to the 1% of defect. Now, there are plenty of people that are described by this quote, and it's a characteristic that ought to be dismissed from the Christian life. Oh, it's true. You may have some hard life, hard knocks in your life. Maybe things haven't worked out the way that you want them to. They don't always go well, but there is no excuse to be a sour, thumb sucking cynic. I mean, if you can't have hope because of your new life in Christ, then there is no hope for you. Now, secondly, we see here that we must subtract shouting, subtract your shouting. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor be put away from you. Now, a person that is bitter often expresses himself in in anger. Paul spoke of wrath and anger and anger produces clamor. And this is what clamor means. It means shouting. People that are bitter have a contentious spirit, and that is not compatible with the Lord's character. Anger usually results in clamor. And this means being excessively noisy, and it pertains mainly to shouting in public. Now, I remember when my wife and I were first married, uh, we lived in an apartment apartment. And there were people that lived below us, and I don't know, they must have been WWF wrestlers or something. They were always calling each other out. There was constant shouting. There was brawling. And sometimes the walls would literally shake. There was so much fighting and so much shouting. And I thought that was bad. But then I discovered that we did a lot of it, too. I mean, the first years of of marriage were rough and it's fortunate that we that we're not violent people because one of us will be dead now. But nowadays, we're just too old and too tired to fight. And so we just pretend that we don't hear each other. But I am careful if we have an argument. I make sure we close all the windows because I don't want the neighbors to hear. Shouting is an expression of Anger and logically, if we're not to have uncontrolled anger, then we can't have the shouting that goes with it. It's a bad attitude. We need to get rid of it. Now, it's a good reason. Christians are never to be caught up in these public protests where people angrily shout. Well, next, you need to dismiss this attitude. Subtract your slander. Let evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Now, evil speaking, that comes from a word from which we get blaspheme. And it's a word that carries with it the idea of a sense of pleasure that comes from knowing the dirt on people and being more than happy to dig it up. Do you understand what I mean? It's like it's like the delight of being able to tell something bad and and nobody's yet heard it. And this goes beyond the normal coffee table gossip that most people do. This is gossip with malice. This is the kind of of speaking in which you hope that by spreading the news, you can cause damage. Now, some people gossip just because they want to have something to say and they think it makes them more interesting if they have something to tell. But this is a little bit different. This is like like going into it with the full intent of damaging Someone's reputation. We hear this word blasphemy and we think, well, blasphemy can only be directed at God. But Paul is saying here that you can blaspheme other people. And I suppose if we look at it this way, when you speak evil of another Christian, you blaspheme one who has been recreated in God's image, which in effect is to blaspheme God. So if you speak evil of someone created in God's image, you also speak evil of God. And what person can can claim to know God if he enjoys harming others with his speech? And if that's what you like to do, you need to check up on your salvation. Now, what these scriptures do here is is they give us some examples of of old attitudes, ones that need to go. There are many, many more. And we picked up some more of those uh, throughout the passage and also in the uh, passage we read in Colossians chapter three. There's much, much more. But Paul gives the negative side as he starts out here, and usually it's his method to follow those negatives with the positives. The apostle doesn't want to be accused himself of constantly accentuating the negative. So then, after we dismiss old attitudes, next comes develop new affections. That's number two, develop new affections. It's impossible to start positive actions until you've dealt with the negative attitude. Now, if you If you get rid of these previous attitudes, then you're ready to turn your attention and your affections to something else. Now, that's what the apostle said in Colossians 3. He said in the second verse, set your affections on things above. And when you develop new affections, there is no room for the sourness, no room for the shouting and the slander. They can't exist with heavenly affections. Now, when you subtract those... Then you're ready to add positive Christian character. You're ready to add the response of gratitude. Now, what person should you be? What kind of person? Well, it does seem that our old way of life crops up too often. There's always too much sourness. There's too much shouting, too much slander. But when you're born again, there is a Christ-like nature in you that rejects bad attitudes and replaces them with holy attitudes as you're sanctified you begin to add christian virtues now i i hadn't intended to to add this passage to the message but as i was going over it just before uh, we came in to to do our recordings today I did want to look at this passage because I think it's so good. There are virtues that need to be added. And Peter brings these out in 2 Peter chapter 1. And let me just read a few verses to you from verses 3 through 9 of uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, ...whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, temperance, and to temperance, patience, and to patience, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity." For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. There Peter talks about virtues that need to be added. And if you fail in this, the failure is to not To acknowledge gratefulness that you have been forgiven of your sins. Now, going back to verse number 32 in Ephesians chapter four, we need to begin with adding consideration. The apostle says, be ye kind one to another. Uh, When we're kind to others, we show that we appreciate the ultimate act of kindness that was done to us. By a loving God who gave his only son to die for us. Now one thing I, I think is always beneficial to your sanity and for your well-being is to be considerate of others. Now, Much of the time when someone says the wrong thing, when we hear a rumor about what someone has done, we think the worst. And then we're offended too easily when we hear that someone has said something. We get offended before we hear the facts. We carry a chip on our shoulder and we are determined nobody's going to get one up on us. Now that is the opposite of what Paul says. In another place he says, this is in Philippians let nothing be done through strife or vainglory but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Our text is not speaking of passive kindness. This is cultivated kindness. This is an active pursuit. In fact, the, 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 the wording here, the action of the phrase to be kind to one another is encouragement to become useful to others. Now, one of the bumper stickers that gains our approval is the one that says practice random acts of kindness. And I think that's good, but I think it's better if we practice deliberate acts of kindness. In other words, we go out of the way to find opportunities to be kind to people. You know what kindness is? It can show up in just little things that go on every day. You're at Costco on Saturday. There are long lines on every register. You have no cart. And you have one item in your hand. Now the person who's been standing there waiting their turn for 15 minutes sees you and says, You can go in front of me. You see how that's different from what Paul said about bitterness? A bitter person looks for the fault and sees only the fault. So the bitter person is the one that's two carts back and sees that the guy in front of him lets you in front, and that makes him angry. That's bitterness. But a person that has developed the affection of kindness is considerate and will deliberately look for the good in every situation and praise rather than criticize a critical spirit is the result of bitterness. A complimentary spirit is the product of a kind heart. So I suppose that people can tell what kind of heart you have by your critique. If it's positive, there's kindness. If it's not, then there's that old root of bitterness that's still in you, and the true character is revealed. You have forgotten, as Peter said in that passage, that you were purged from your old sins. I know this is a very hard thing to do, But people that need the most kindness are people that are bitter. I try not to heap more bitterness on people that are bitter. And so I'll just smile at church members that treat me badly behind my back. If anything, I want to prove I will not get down on your level. Like the song says, a higher plane that I have found, Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. Then also be this kind of person. Next, we would add compassion. Be kind and tenderhearted. This is what tenderhearted means. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted. Now, if you look at verse number 19 in in this fourth chapter, you see the opposite. Paul said the Gentiles are past feeling. That's a very useful verse because it, it explains much of what follows. Past feeling. Is like having a nerve that's no longer sensitive it's like having a nerve cauterized now in first Timothy Paul spoke of those that had a conscience that was seared with a hot iron and he meant that people without Christ have lost their sensitivity evil horrible activity does not pinch a nerve in them it's like the pro-choice crowd They have no sensitivity to the horror of killing a baby. Now in verse 18, it's called the blindness of their heart, which means the hardness of their heart. And there the word is like a medical term that we use when we talk of speaking, speak of hardening of the arteries. The Boy Scouts have a term for the lowest ranking scout. He's called a tenderfoot. Now, with everything that's going on with the Boy Scouts today, there's all kinds of implications in that. I suppose the Boy Scouts have been infiltrated with gender scouts. But tenderfoot came from a, it's a word that, that, that came from the Old West mining camps. It meant a person that is inexperienced, one who's not used to the hardships of outdoor life. Now, when it comes to going camping and things like that, you could call me a tenderfoot. I'm not used to that. Don't want that. But the idea of being tender-hearted is that you haven't become hardened and insensitive. Now what Paul is saying here is that we are not to be people that see others with problems and then we have no feeling towards them. Because it's not my problem, I'm not going to deal with it. I shed no tears for you. Your problems don't bother me. The character of Christ is compassion. In fact, 700 years before Christ, Isaiah prophesied that he would be compassionate. God spoke through Isaiah, the words of the Messiah. He wrote in Isaiah 61 verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to them that are bound. And you remember the Lord quoted that in Luke chapter 4 verse 18. And he applied that to himself. He was the Messiah that fulfilled that scripture. Bind up the broken hearted. Christ would come with compassion. And those that were broken over their sins. Those that were helpless in their condition. That's who Christ came to help. And that's the attitude that God wants from us. Now, I think a a wonderful example of caring Christians is found in Paul's commendation of the churches of Macedonia. Now, if you turn uh, in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 for a moment, you can see this. This is a the, the churches in Macedonia had their problems. There were many problems. They were suffering and they needed help. But they were not so self-consumed that when they saw other Christians in trouble, that they wouldn't go the extra mile to help them. And Paul says in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians 8, moreover, of 2 Corinthians rather, moreover, brethren, we do you to wit. We want you to know of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded under the riches of their liberality. For to their power, I bear record, yea, beyond their power, they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship and the ministering to the saints. Now, they had given an offering, and they impressed upon Paul, take this offering, give it to the churches in Jerusalem, and this they did, not as we hope, but they gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. Sometimes our problems are all that we think about. Our problems consume us. And when we see others that are in need, we are hardened because we have our needs to worry about. And this is the opposite effect of what should happen to those of us who have been trained by trouble. We need to consider that God may bring trouble into our lives to soften us and help us. To have more understanding and be compassionate to those that are in need. Now, when Christ was beaten unmercifully and nailed to the cross, he was troubled. But that didn't stop him from being compassionate, even towards those that tried to take his life. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that leads me to our third thought for today. Dismiss old attitudes, develop new affections, and then, thirdly, display godly attributes. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Now the next statement is forgiving one another. The pursuit of kindness, being active with a tender heart, being compassionate. That will lead you to the higher plane of living in which you display godly attributes. Well, You you may think that I'm a little presumptuous to claim that we could have godly attributes, but we certainly can because we just read it from Peter a moment ago. He said, you are partakers of the divine nature. And when you become a Christian, you are placed into and given access to the divine nature. And what attribute of God hits closer to home than forgiveness forgiveness is the only reason we can talk about these things today if we had not been forgiven of sin if we had not been made the righteousness of God in Christ then we would never have any sense of what these verses mean they would be no help to us at all and Paul comes down to the end of this fourth chapter and he sums up the reason that all these changes are made it's because we have been forgiven and if you have been forgiven, when you didn't deserve to be forgiven, an act of thankfulness is to forgive as God forgives. Well, let's talk about two things, then we'll be through, in the, through with the message. The first is the why of forgiveness. Why? Why do you forgive? The answer's answer is given in the 32nd verse, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. So it's as simple as doing for others what was done for you. Now, notice that Paul doesn't say forgive others, then God will forgive you. No, you do it because you've already been forgiven. You see, God never asked anything from you to forgive you. There is no motivation in his forgiveness, but grace. There's a great parable in Matthew 18 in which Jesus talked about a man that was forgiven an impossible debt to pay. And yet when he had the opportunity to forgive a lesser debt, He would not forgive it. Now, that parable is an object lesson that a person who has such a hard heart, such an unforgiving heart, one who would not forgive others when he had been forgiven so much. That is an example of a person that is so unlike Christ that it's impossible to consider him a Christian. We have been forgiven much. In fact, our sins were so great that nothing less than the death of the son of God could actuate forgiveness. Nothing compares to the infinite suffering that was placed on Christ because of our sins. And yet God took the initiative to forgive. God doesn't ask us to do this. He demands that we do it because it is Christ's character to forgive. And since we are image bearers of Christ, we must forgive. Our great transgressions against the holiness and the righteousness of God were forgiven, and so now we ought to forgive the lesser transgressions of others. You see, all the transgressions that that that, and all the hurts that have been made against us, the sum of all the transgressions done by all others, is infinitely less than our transgression against the holy God. And yet, still, I know there are some people who won't go to church because they can't stand. To be in the same room with another member who may have wronged them. Is that being Christ-like? Can you say that a person who would do such things demonstrates the life of God in him? Would you say that person is a Christian? If you are looking for evidence of Christianity, an unforgiving person has none. Despite all the good things that a person may think he does, if he will not forgive, he has missed one of the cardinal foundations of the faith. Why do we forgive? Because God forgave us. And then lastly, I want you to notice the way of forgiveness. And this is so important. It's vital. It can't be missed. The way of forgiveness is Jesus Christ. How is it done? Even as God for Christ's sake. The great error of the world and and of generic Christianity Is they say that God forgives because of love. Now I want you to hold on just a minute. So that you can understand the reason I say this is an error. People think God will not send me to hell. Because God is a God of love. And he loves me. You don't want to count on that for a second. The Bible does not say that God forgives because of love. God forgives because of Christ. Now, we do know that there is love in forgiveness, but the love of God is in Christ and it doesn't exist apart from him. If God forgave based on love as a standalone entity, then the sacrifice of Christ wouldn't be needed. But God extends love and mercy, grace and compassion only in Jesus Christ. So if you want to know the reason that a Muslim or a Buddhist, a Hindu, the Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses and all others who don't have Christ in them, die and go to the burning hell. Why is that? It's because they can't have the love of God outside of the truth of Jesus Christ. Now, the way of forgiveness is Christ and only Christ. God made no provision for the forgiveness of any person outside of faith in Christ. And to say there is another way is to say that God cruelly crucified his son for no reason. If you can be forgiven without Christ, he never needed to come to this world. So what are we to be most thankful for? Now, if you want the list, I can give you the only one that you need on your list. If your list has Jesus Christ, if you are thankful for Jesus Christ, you have found all reasons To be thankful first Corinthians one says, but of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. In other words, Christ has made all things for you. He is your list to be thankful for. So you can show your thankfulness to Christ by dismissing the bad attitudes, developing new affections and displaying godly attributes. How do you do that? You do it by obedience. And what is obedience? It is our good works because good works always follow the commandments. Now, two years ago, we did a study of the commandments and, and that was my favorite study of all time. The commandments reflect the character of Christ. And the exposition of those commandments showed us how to be like Jesus. And the best way to show gratitude, your thankfulness, is to be like Jesus. And friends, much of this depends on the way that you treat people. The end of Ephesians 4 says, And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. So, Paul works his way through guilt, and then he talked about grace. Then he showed us how to respond to grace, and that response is gratitude. He told us how to order our lives in gratitude. The key to thankfulness is obedience. The key is to walk worthy of your calling, as he says when he begins chapter 1, Ephesians 4.1. You see, Jesus isn't here For you to do good things for him. He's not here so you can show your appreciation for what he did for you. No, the way that we show it is how we treat his people. He said this. He said, when you do acts of kindness to one of my children, it's the same as if you did it to me. The way that you show thankfulness is how you treat the undeserving, just like the way he treated us when we were undeserving. Oh, it's true. It's been a long, tough year. We've got more to go, I think. But Christ went through so much more. We are not to let these lesser trivial things diminish, diminish our thankfulness. This Thanksgiving truly show that you are thankful by your obedience to Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come thanking you. Thanking you. That's our Operative word today, thanking you for all the graces, all the goodness, all the pleasures that are found in Jesus Christ. We are nothing without him and you and your love, your mercy and your grace gave him for us. And our response to that grace should always be to be obedient, to show thankfulness and gratitude by our lives being sanctified and made in the image of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to do that. Uh, if we have people listening to this message today and and they have the attitudes that we've talked about, they haven't started the godly attributes, if they're falling behind on those, we just pray, Lord, that people would dedicate their lives to you and they would turn to you and and in gratefulness change their lives by your help, by your Holy Spirit's power. We know that can be done because it's promised in your word. Now, Lord, we we pray for our families this Thanksgiving. We are told by uh, our government that families shouldn't gather and there's all kinds of rules and regulations that are supposed to be adhered to in in order to have a Thanksgiving dinner this year. It's hard, but let's not let that discourage us from being thankful for everything that you've done for us. We are here. We are alive. We have the uh, wonderful opportunity to serve you and to obey you we thank you for our church we thank you for our people Uh, lord we pray keep us strong keep us fit keep us spiritually ready to get back into church and to go to work for you and lord help us every day to show that that spirit of thankfulness in our lives be with us lord bless our families and we pray for a good thanksgiving in jesus name we pray amen and now I want to give you a, a final benediction from 2nd Corinthians chapter 9. This follows upon that passage that we read just a moment ago about the Macedonian churches. It's a passage about being um, about being a cheerful giver. It's about sharing. And that's one of the things that we uh, do at Thanksgiving. We, we are sharing. This is a good lesson to remember this Thanksgiving. 2nd Corinthians chapter 9 verse 7. Every man, according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. As it is written, he hath dispersed abroad, he hath given to the poor, his righteousness remaineth forever. Now he that ministereth Seed to the sower, both minister bread for your food, and multiply your seed sown, and increase the fruits of your righteousness, being enriched in everything to all bountifulness, which causeth through us thanksgiving to God. For the administration of this service not only supplieth the want of the saints, but is abundant also by many thanksgivings unto God. Whilst by the experiment of this ministration, they glorify God for your professed subjection under the gospel of Christ and for your liberal distribution unto them and to all men. And by their prayer for you, which long after you for the exceeding grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. We hope you have a great Thanksgiving and we hope to, to see you soon. Don't know how long it's going to be, but uh, let's pray that the Lord will bring us back together soon. And let's remain thankful for all that he's done. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.